Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Pasó Genduzzi, Pepe. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnar Blog. James! Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That that is the goodliest morning of all time, I think. Uh, Thank you for that. You're very welcome. Uh, I felt like uh, after such a long time with not winning a game and having a goodly morning at last, it deserved something a little more than just a goodly morning. Even our good friend at Simpsons Arsenal uh, did a nice little gif uh, with uh, Itchy and Scratchy mm. sitting on their porch drinking lemonade, wishing each other a goodly morning. I don't know which of us would be Itchy and which would be Scratchy. No, difficult. Uh, mm. Do you have a preference? Well, I'd rather be the one that wasn't being flayed alive and sent into space and having its head blown up and boiled alive and that kind of stuff. So if that I had does the choice... Seem, yeah, and that does seem like my natural casting, I have to be honest. So. <laughs> Some people were wondering last night if we won, because we won, that, that you know, something terrible might have happened to you. Um, I assume I'm you're all to, right. You sound I'm fine. I'm racking my brains. Um, most things are fine. I mean, I will say I'm in the process of... Trying trying to buy a flat and yesterday I found out that the building that it's in is moving so that was a concern hang on one second the building is moving in the sense that it's being uh, uh, relocated or it's actually moving from side to side it's moving as in the London clay on which it is built is not as stable as you might wish for so that does count as troubling news, certainly. It does. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. I mean, maybe it's just karma finally coming home. Maybe we were just due this. I mean, how long did we wait? Two months? More than two months for a win? 64 days. 64 oh. days between October the 6th and winning yesterday. We beat Bournemouth 1-0 and then we beat West Ham last night. So, yes, it has been it has been a long time coming. And I think you're right. We do deserve it. We've been through the mill. We've had some difficult times. And while uh, I don't think we can state with any certainty that this is the end of our difficult um, uh, fixture list or, or uh, difficulties within the Premier 
Premier League, it is just fucking... It's nice to win. It's so mm. nice to win. It's so nice to, to go to bed and not worry about what you're going to have to write about in the morning or find a way of explaining what's going on. You know, we can get into the nuts and bolts of it, but it, it was just lovely to win. And before we crack into the match and everything else, can I just say welcome back? Welcome back <laughs> to the many listeners out there who just felt they could not inflict more Arsenal misery upon themselves during that difficult run. I understand it. It's not easy. It hasn't been easy for us. And this is a podcast in which we are going to discuss an Arsenal win. People are gonna people are gonna be interested again because it's it's something new and fresh and different and exciting. So to all of you who've put the podcast on hold for a little while, we don't we don't uh, bear any grudges. We understand. But welcome back. We're glad to have you. Yes, welcome back. You haven't missed much. Mainly me singing Lewis Capaldi. That was about it. Uh, that was as good as it got. And that was God as good damn as it got. if that doesn't sum up how bad things have been. <laughs> but at least, uh, yeah, I mean, wow. It's just a huge relief, palpable relief, I think, from every Arsenal fan at a result that just is long overdue. And I suppose the, the, the elation of the Arsenal fans echoed by the elation of the players on the pitch. I mean, great scenes at full time. And I think we all felt that, didn't we? Absolutely. I thought that that was great. And it's so weird, isn't it? Because it's been, it's been so tough and so disheartening that when you see the players react in the way they do yesterday, ordinarily you would say, Jeez, guy, come on! You've just beaten West Ham. That's it. But there was, there was something in the results, the importance of it, the fact that they've broken through whatever this kind of psychological barrier they've had. This mm. this really deep rut that we've been in. It's been very difficult for them to find a way out of it. And I do think one of the the things I've enjoyed most about Freddie Umberg is the fact that he doesn't sugarcoat anything. You know, he says when things are bad, he says when things are good. I mean, they, they haven't been that good, but, but he was talking about how difficult it's been for the players. And I know we can say they're professionals, they're paid a lot of money, they should do better, they should perform better, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we take away the human element of it. And I think Freddie was quite um, strident when he was making that point. So for them to have struggled for so long and then to kind of, to to finally you know, um, open the door into what we hope is a, a brave new world. You could see the relief as much as anything on, on their faces and the way that they reacted when the game was over. Yeah, you could. And you saw it in their celebrations after every goal too. I mean, I just felt there was a bit of a togetherness there, which has been so absent from this Arsenal team seemingly in yeah. recent weeks. And I really liked as well that Freddie in his post-match interview you know, he put all the credit onto the players. This was his first win as Arsenal manager, one he must have been desperate for. He would have hated to have come into this spell and not have had at least a night like this, you know, something really positive for him to take away from the experience. And yet when he was asked about it afterwards, he said it's all down to the players. And I I love that yeah. humility. Uh, and I think that, you know, he clearly really does believe in this group. Even someone like Nicola Pepe, who he didn't start in his first two games, he was talking about him being an amazing footballer. He's very generous. And as much as he can give very clear and lucid criticism, he also seems determined to imbue the players with some confidence, some happiness, which is what they need right now. Yeah, I think so. And probably when you've worked with someone like Arsene Wenger, who was very much a guy who accentuated the positives. Yes. You know, at the same time, he, you know, he would, he would, uh, you know, he'd um, talk about the failings. And I think Freddie has had no choice but to address those because they've been so wide and varied over the last little while. But yeah, this, this idea of 
of putting it on the players, I think, uh, and giving them all the credit was really notable because that was it was in the Sky interview where the guy yeah. said to him, "Well, you know, what about the manager? He's got to take some credit." And he went, "No, no, no. This is this is all on the players. I'm just there mm-hmm. to guide them a little bit or something." I think is is what he said. So yeah, I, I love that, and I you know. Uh, I just love the fact that we've won again and, and maybe the bar has been set really low over the last little while, but it just, it feels nice to be able to go into this uh, podcast and talk about some of the some of the positive things. Yeah, I mean, it's worked, hasn't it? The bar has been set suitably low that we are absolutely delighted with this. And to be honest, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the worst thing. I mean, it means we're back to really, really, really enjoying what otherwise might have been a relatively routine win. And yeah, you've got to take the good times when they come. And right now, this is definitely one. OK, well, look, let's let's go back to the, to the start and let's talk about the team selection. Mm-hmm. And, well, there was a, an issue in the warm-up because we lost... Hector Bellerin with um, a tight hamstring. I have to say, just some of the criticism that I saw directed at Bellerin. Um, yeah, in the I saw you tweet about this because yeah. I've not really witnessed it. So please tell me what. Well, what just people sort of going, "Oh, Bellerin, he's too soft. He's too this. You know, he's finished. You know, he's not the same player that he was, and maybe he won't be the same player." you know, after the cruciate ligament injury, but he he did it in January and it takes nine months to just get back to the fringes of the first team after an injury like that. Mm. And it then takes weeks and months to build your fitness, your sharpness, your power, your pace, all of those things. And there's such a short-term view of of how serious that, that injury can be to players. Like, everyone knows it's serious, but then as soon as he's back, they're expecting him to be at 100% again. I don't really get it. I don't get the the short-termism or, or, or whatever it is, you know, that you would think there would be some understanding of a player coming back from a really serious injury. We know they get little aches and strains and niggles, and that's one of the really serious um side effects and consequences of of a big injury is that when you come back you're overcompensating or you're trying to build up your mus- uh, your muscles again and you get a hamstring strain or a calf strain or mm-hmm. a groin strain or whatever it might be so it's really understandable i mean look at what's happening with rob holding holding is maybe a month and a half ahead of bellerin in terms of his recovery from a, a cruciate ligament injury and he's struggling for fitness um, you know he's got a little knee problem at the moment, which is probably related to the to the cruciate thing. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand why people are are um, so unaware of how physically difficult it is for a player to come back, and I don't know why he he's being criticised. Um, you know, because because he picked up a little bit of a hamstring strain, and in a precautionary way, the club have said don't don't go out there and play because you could make it worse. Yeah. And look, I'm sure Hector would have wanted to be out there. Uh, hamstring strains are associated with cruciate recovery. It's something that happens all the time. And I think Arsenal taking a precaution that might mean he's back in a week or two weeks rather than six or 12 weeks is definitely the right decision. Mm. Uh, and interesting, I thought the way Freddie responded to it because, you know, he had David Luiz there on the bench. It would have been quite easy for him to to bring Luiz back into the side, shift Chambers out to the right. But instead he, he turned to Maitland-Niles, a guy who hasn't played at right back since that fateful Aston Villa game in which he was sent off. So yeah. it, it showed, I think, that he was quite committed to his idea, which, you know, involved taking Luiz out and playing with overlapping fullbacks. Yeah, and look... You could see very early on that Maitland-Niles was nervous. 
that you know he hadn't played for weeks and weeks and you could see mm-hmm. that maybe his first touch I think going back towards his own goal wasn't great and then there was a pass that went out straight out for a throw and you could see okay he's he's a bit nervous here and the team were nervous the the passing was very safety first wasn't it but you're right to make that point about Freddie because it's a big decision to leave out David Luiz um you know given his experience and his his stature um mm-hmm. you know not based on his performances obviously because he's been really poor but he made that decision because he wanted the team to play in a certain way and I do think that that it would be good for somebody to sit down with Ainsley Maitland-Niles and say to him look your chances of playing first team football at Arsenal in midfield are really slim your chances Mm -hmm. of playing in the front three as a winger where you've said you want to play are almost non-existent because we've got a £72 million signing that that came to life last night and we'll, we'll obviously discuss Pepe But what you do have is an opportunity to play pretty regularly at right back. And I know this isn't a position you you want to play in, but this is a chance for you at this football club to establish yourself as, you know, either solid, dependable backup for Hector Bellerin or potentially somebody who could um, play a lot of games while Hector is recovering from that injury. I mean, I don't think the right back spot because of Bellerin and the question mark over his fitness, et cetera, et cetera, is set in stone. We know Chambers is not the guy, you know, as hard as he tries. Um, I, it would be good for someone just to remind him that there's an opportunity there. I couldn't agree more. And it is his best chance of playing sort of semi-regular football at Arsenal. You know, you can't change. The heart wants what it wants. If he doesn't want to be a right back, then... I guess there's only so much we can do, but from a professional perspective, mm. yeah, he should be taking that opportunity really seriously. He's missed a lot of football since he said he didn't want to play right back that Callum Chambers has picked up in his stead. Uh, and I think he might have a bit of regret about that. I thought he got better as the game went on, which is sort of what you would expect in the circumstances. And, you know, if you if Bellerin is out, he is the most obviously analogous right back. He is the most similar player we have yeah. to play in that position. Uh, and, and Bellerin is going to miss games so it is a chance for him I hope he knuckles down and I hope he he wants to take it yeah yeah um so he, he made that decision obviously he, he brought in Kieran Tierney as well at left back yeah. he moved Callum Chambers into the center of defense alongside Socrates so that was his um his decision on how to find the right balance mm-hmm. from the difficult options that he had you know um I, I think Chambers did well there yeah, I mean, centre-halves is such a tr- trouble for Freddie and I think the fact he started a different pairing in every game tells you everything you need to know, really. It's almost like if he was the incumbent manager and he was here in the long term, you'd think, well, he's sending a message, isn't he, to the boardroom yeah. by saying, what I've got isn't really good enough. Yeah. Uh, he, he may be doing that anyway, to be honest, but mm. I, I thought Chambers did okay. I mean, he's... I know that he's been really, really pushing for this chance at centre-back and uh, he got it and I thought... He was pretty steady. I mean, yeah. he played there against Newcastle. We kept a clean sheet. Uh, just the one goal conceded last night, So, uh, which for us is pretty good. I mean, it's been two a game, I think, yeah. until then. Did you so, notice... Sorry, I was going to ask you, did you notice before the game, just before kickoff, cameras were on him and he called Socrates over and he called him over and he was sort of giving him a, a bit of a talk. Right. It was like... I didn't see that. He was the guy saying, look... Blah, blah, blah. This is what we're going to do. And Socrates was sort of standing there looking um, mournful and nodding away. But it was like Chambers was the senior guy, if mm. you like, mm. um, which I thought was was quite interesting to see. 
Yeah, and I think he must be aware of the problems at centre-half and think, actually, we're not that far from me kind of establishing myself as number one choice in this position because, you know, everybody else is a bit of a mess. So, uh, you know, I think it was a good night for Chambers and based on the positive result, I think he deserves to be stuck with. Yeah, um, yeah, I totally agree. Uh the other thing that Freddie did, of course, was to drop Alexandra Lacazette, who scored yep. three goals in his last three games. But I think people would people would say he hasn't really performed in general anywhere near his best. And he looks like a guy who's not particularly happy with his lot. Um, yeah. So the decision, and it's something I uh, we spoke about on the podcast, it was what mm-hmm. I would have liked to, to see was Martinelli on the left, Pepe on the right, and Aubameyang up front. Now, it took an hour <laughs> for it to really pay mm-hmm. dividends, but I do think there's also something commendable in the way that Freddie picked that team because he, he went for an 18-year-old making his first Premier League start, and Pepe, who, as we know, has been really finding it tough um, for form, for confidence, for belief. You know, he's he's had problems settling in. He's had problems performing. And I think we even saw that in the 60 minutes before he kind of came to life. You know, there were moments where he looked good. There were moments where he looked really poor. And I think in, in the 15 minutes leading up to um, the first goal, I was looking at him going, oh my God, <laughs> this, is, this is not working out really. I don't know what to think about this, but I can kind of understand why he, he hasn't been playing because he looks like a guy absolutely shorn of any confidence. You know, when you look at the guy who did what he did last season for Lille and the way he played with such flair and such verve, this guy looked a million miles from that. But it was still quite a brave decision because... Um, in the interest of balance, he picked two players who, for various reasons, might not have performed. Yeah, absolutely. But they were two players who seemed to me to be much better suited to the system we wanted to play. And it meant moving Meza Ozil into a, a central area. And I thought he had a mixed game, Meza, but, you know, I think he led the match for passes in the final third. So he was clearly instrumental to everything we did going forward. Uh, Pepe. I agree with you that he had good moments and bad moments in the first hour. But what I would say is that in that period where we were really bad, I mean, let's not let's make no bones about it. The first half performance was pretty poor from Arsenal. I I did kind of feel like if anything was going to happen, it might be from him. Because even though there was a kind of a, a slightly sort of scattergun roulette element to what he was doing, he did have moments of danger or moments where he could go past a guy or could find a bit of space. And I, I just had a bit of a hunch that he might come good. I didn't see him coming good quite as spectacularly as he did. I mean, what a fantastic goal yeah. he scored and what a big night it could be for him. I mean, that moment with him and Freddie on the touchline, that felt quite special, actually. It did, yeah. It really did. Um, we'll come back to his contribution um, at the other end of the pitch, but I just want to touch on a couple of things. One, uh, one will be the West Ham goal, but just before the West Ham goal, uh, to Aaron Cresswell, isn't it? That's his first mm. name. Um, subjected Pepe to what was a really, really dangerous tackle. If you watch it again, he is off the ground. Mm. He jumps in from the side at full pace. I know he gets the ball, but we have to really talk about um, protecting players from from that kind of from that kind of a tackle. At the very least, for me, that was a yellow card. And the fact that Mike Dean saw it and 
VAR also looked at it, according to Sky, and decided that a player launching himself off the ground with two feet off the ground, I'm not saying he went in two-footed, but, you know, there's... Um, you know, there's a reckless recklessness to to that challenge. Mm. Um, I I can't believe that that wasn't even a booking. No, I I agree with you, and I think the ball is what misleads people at times. They see, oh, the ball, you know, he got the ball, but the the the, the way in which he flies into it is really really reckless. It reminds me a bit of there was a Thierry Henry tackle once upon a time in the right back spot for Arsenal, where he was just it, was absolutely Carraher, was it? Yeah, maybe. He just absolutely took off and was like mid-air. Uh, and it was kind of similar, actually. And I feared for Pepe. He looked to be in a lot of pain and his knee had slightly twisted as he'd gone down. Uh, fortunately, he got up and played on and he did the best thing a winger can do in that situation, which is that he gave Cresswell a bit of a nightmare and he ended up uh, getting substituted, didn't he? He was injured and had been booked finally for what should have been a, a second yellow card. Yeah, I'm just I'm just watching that tackle again. <laughs> I mean, that it's, is one of the most extraordinary attempts at It was against time. Everton right. and it was in the 92nd minute and he loses the ball going into the Everton area and I think it's David Weir is the defender he wins it the ball's going out to the touchline and he literally jumps like a long jumper to try and get it like unbelievable I mean he was booked for that um, and quite how it was just a booking I'll I'll never know it was ridiculous Uh, but I think there's something a bit more maybe a bit more sinister about the the Cresswell one you know Alan Smith on Sky called it a sturdy challenge and that kind of does it a disservice I think it was a dangerous Mm. challenge and I think there was somebody sent off quite recently for a tackle in which they won the ball but because of the way they followed through they caught the opponent could have been last weekend or the weekend before I can't quite remember Um, I can't remember the teams um but, but that's the way it should be. If yeah. the challenge is reckless, then it should be punished. Mm. Um, the only thing I can say is that Cresswell, like I say, eventually did have to go off injured and West Ham brought Masuaku on at left-back and we did get a bit of karmic retribution there because he couldn't deal with Pepe at all. No, but I mean, the 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 fact that Cresswell made another challenge on Pepe, a really bad challenge on yeah. Pepe in the second half, not long before he went off, I think he'd actually got injured and just said, fuck it, I'm going to take yeah. the guy out because I know I'm coming off here. Yeah, yeah. You know, that that should have been a second yellow card. But look, Mike Dean, Var, fuck those guys. We know, we know how that goes. Um, moments after that first Pepe challenge, West Ham went ahead. Mm. Not the... Um, finest moment for our players in a in a defensive sense um you could look at Aubameyang and the way that he didn't quite clear the ball you can look at Kolasinac and the fact that uh, his positioning was all over the place you can look at Shaka for not being brave enough to to stick his head in where it hurts mm-hmm. um we spoke last week didn't we or earlier this week about Lauren Koscielny and the kind of challenge that he would make in the box which often resulted him in taking you know massive blows to the head uh, <laughs> uh, it's yeah. not nice but that's what defending is about you, you've got to be able to and you've got to be willing to stick your head where it potentially might hurt Shaka wasn't uh, wasn't willing to do that and Maitland Niles part of me thinks he was trying to get out of the way um, 
because he knew Leno might have had it covered, but you've got to do your job as a defender, and that's just block the ball and get in the way. So nobody really covered themselves in any glory there. No, I would agree. I mean, I think the Shaka one looks particularly bad, but I think maybe that's because of the context around it. People are probably questioning his commitment anyway, given some of what's yeah. gone on. Um, and yeah, he didn't sort of put himself on the line there, as you might like. But I mean, the first half more generally was just the most diabolical half, I thought. And two teams who looked really scared, to use Freddie's word from last week. They both looked scared to make mistakes. They were playing it very cagely. And I kind of think West Ham probably couldn't believe their luck that they went ahead. I'm not sure either side especially deserved to be in front at halfway. No, I mean, I think West Ham's plan was to sit deep uh, in a in a really low block and to stay organised and to mm-hmm. deny a space and then wait for Arsenal to inevitably do something silly with the ball, which would allow them to counter. Um, and, and that, you know, that whole transition thing comes up again. There were a couple of moments in the first half where I think we were we were caught out. I think maybe we were, we were a little better, a little more aware and got back more quickly than we have done in the past. But yeah, two teams really, really low on confidence. Arsenal the the pace of the passing was really frustrating, wasn't it? In the first half, you know, rolling the ball from one side to the other and taking the taking the easy option, the safe option, because nobody wants to be the one to give the ball away. Um, and I think it's interesting that when we did start to play a little bit in the second half, it was a willingness to pass the ball between the lines that that brought about the the turnaround. Um, mm. But that first fifteen minutes of the second half was just as bad, if not worse. <laughs> then, right. I've blacked it out now. See, I've only yeah. thinking about that 15 minutes in which we scored the three goals. The rest of the game, I've, I've basically tried mm. to forget. Okay, well, let's let's go there then. Let's put that 15 minutes into the bin, along with the first half, <laughs> where it belongs. And we spark into life in a, a nine-minute spell in which we score three times. So the first mm-hmm. goal, Torreira to Kolasinac, and Martinelli who had been pretty quiet. His involvement had been minimal, I think. Uh, it was. I was wondering before we scored the goal, I was going, why aren't we getting this guy on the ball at least? Why aren't we even trying to, to let him run at the defenders? And I think it was difficult to work the ball into positions where he could do that uh, because of the way West Ham were organised. But Kolasinac got forward well, a good cross, and there was Martinelli, uh, a goal on his first Premier League start. And, and, you know, there have been few bright spots in this season, but he really is one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And while he had been quiet, I think his biggest contribution to Arsenal was off the ball. Um, We had a tweet, actually, Thomas Javich uh, tweeted us saying, interesting stats about Martinelli. No Arsenal player regained possession of the ball more times. No Arsenal player made more tackles and blocks. He made 20 high-intensity sprints in the game. Uh, The second was Fredericks with 11 and then Alba was 10. So nearly many, nearly double as many high-intensity sprints as any other player. Right. He is so intelligent in his movement. And one of the interesting things is obviously we've seen him play predominantly as a centre-forward, but he talks about enjoying it out wide. And seeing that goal, you could kind of understand why, because although he did start on the wing, there were times where he really was playing as a kind of second striker. His his movements inside and his movements into the penalty box and getting quite close to Aubameyang were really threatening and really dangerous. And this was a great example where he picks up the cutback from Klasnach and it, a really good finish too. I mean, that's a, a first-time finish, really composed into the far corner. Uh, and on his first Premier League start, 
I think he's the fourth youngest goal scorer for us in Premier League history. Wow. Young, I think he might be the youngest to score on his first start in the Premier League. So, yeah, just he really has been a sensational signing. And as much as we've been critical of recruitment in some areas, you know, that's not one you can criticise at all. No, not one bit. And I think, you know, he justified his selection. Uh, Freddie was rewarded for his... Uh, for his bravery in picking him because it is a brave decision to pick an 18-year-old away from home in the Premier League. Um, and yeah, look, it's great to see. Uh, so let's let's talk Pepe. I'm just mm-hmm. watching the I'm watching the goal again. Um, it starts at the back and it's quite interesting. It's, you know, Torreira plays it between the lines to Ozil who drives in, plays it to Aubameyang and to Pepe. Um that felt like a huge moment in his Arsenal career, didn't it? Because things have been so tough for him. And, uh, you know, he did score those two great free kicks, but didn't didn't really get the, the confidence bounce or boost that we would have liked because he was yeah. left on the bench um, mostly after that. Um, we were looking at those goals as, oh, this is the time that he's announced himself. I think what we can say, it, in the moments that, he has caught the eye. They've been really, really good. Like, those two free kicks were amazing. That goal last night was was one of those, again, where it looks really simple, but it's not. I think the execution on the finish was, was just top class. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing that there are obviously things for him still to work on, but the quality that he can produce um, is really out there. It's, it's exceptional. Yeah, and actually, I know we talk about watching you know, YouTube clips of him from last season, but I, I've seen all of his goals for Lille, and not many of them are of the sort of aesthetic quality of the ones we've seen in an Arsenal shirt. In fact, the moments where he has scored for us, it's almost like he's elevated, he's had to step up to a, an even higher plate. Mm. And yeah, this is a, a brilliant, brilliant finish. There's on, uh, on the Arsenalist website, they've got the goal with the French commentary. And as it hits the net, the commentator goes... Pepe, enfin, uh, finally. And, uh, oh. you know, that's very much uh, how it feels. It's not his first goal in an Arsenal shirt. It's his fourth, but it does have this sense of finally he has arrived. You know, this is a... Yeah, I do. Uh, um, yeah, sorry. I do like those uh, French commentators. Yeah. They're fucking good. Like, a lot of the goal clips tend to be from French football, and there's a lot of, ooh, la, la, yeah. sort of stuff going on. <laughs> Hang on, let's play this, will we? Let's see if we can play it here. Uh, oh yeah, I can see it's from RMC Sports. So let's give this a go. Hang on. Oh, skip the ads. Yes, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I know. Okay, hang on. Arsenal Scott Gaze. Money, don't worry. Maintenant, ça fait six sur huit. Ça baisse un tout petit peu le taux avec ce but de Martinelli. Mais on l'attend. Le buteur Gabonais peut-être là. Ce sera Nicolas Pepe. Enfin, enfin dans le jeu, Nicolas Pepe. I like it. Yeah, it's a great moment for him, and I mean. There was no sort of cool celebration. Do you know what I mean? There was no Thierry Henry brushing off the shoulder. He was really delighted yeah. with that, and rightly so. The teammates were delighted for him as well, weren't they? Because you could hear it on the cameras. You could yeah. hear a lot of, Nico! Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. uh, always have a mic behind the goal in case they celebrate there, definitely. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I just thought... Uh, the other thing I would say is this goal, like the first goal, actually 
came after Arsenal just being a little bit more ambitious with their passing between the lines. It was Torreira in the build-up to the first goal, played that really nice pass into Kolasinac. And then on this one, Ozil, he plays a pass that looks straightforward, but it's not really. I mean, he picks Aubameyang out uh, on the other side of the penalty area when he's surrounded by a couple of players, and it just opens up the space for us to, to find those moments. And so many of our recent goals and recent chances have come from dead balls, from set yeah. pieces to see it clicking in open play uh, is just a, a huge, huge relief. Yeah, for sure. And what about Aubameyang in the in the build-up to the third goal as well? Mm. Um, really, really smart back heel and the movement then to get into the box. Pepe picks him out with a cross and yeah, great finish. Great finish because mm. the ball was slightly behind him, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, it was. And he finishes really well on the turn, actually. And that's what he does. And, you know, that that's why so many people want to see him in the penalty area because, you know, there's no one really who finishes quite like he does. I mean, Lacazette's missed some big chances without wishing to dig him out in away games in recent weeks. Aubameyang had that one last night and he put it away. Yeah. So 3-1 and there's 20 minutes to go. And uh, look, I can't say I felt safe. It's, mm. You know, given everything that's happened over the last little while, I did not feel safe. As it turned out, there were 27 minutes to go because seven minutes of injury time, there was a stoppage for Xhaka, wasn't there, where he got whacked in the head with, with mm. the ball and that seemed to that seemed to affect him. Um, and ultimately, he had to come off. Um, but 27 minutes for West Ham at home to find a goal. I don't really remember them threatening, to be honest, which no. I, I don't know whether it says... Um, as much about the way we controlled the game when we were winning or how poor they were. I think it's probably a little from column A, a little from column B, but I did like the way we played some just sensible possession football at 3-1-up. We didn't go chasing up the pitch looking for more goals. Um, it, it just felt It just felt a bit common sense. Yeah, yeah, we started a bit of control on the game. I mean, I think it would be remiss not to say that West Ham are not in a good way at the moment. And mm -hmm. it's funny, I was looking at this fixture thinking, away to West Ham, London derby, this could be really tricky. And obviously when you go behind, those fears are compounded. But you've got to remember, this isn't Upton Park. I don't think that stadium helps them mm. very much at all. They've lost three in a row at home now for the first time in about four years. Uh, so I think they're... The paucity of quality in their team definitely helped us, but it was what we needed and we looked so much more assured than we have done in yeah. literally months. So, yeah, I mean, a really, really good night. The right opponent at the right time, the right performance in that second half. Uh, and, yeah, a, a, just a massive relief. Yeah, huge relief and hugely important because, look, we, we've said this before, the fixtures get more difficult now. We have some very difficult fixtures coming up. Um, I think they're still going to be very difficult, but I'd rather we went into them off the back of... It's felt like a burden, a real um, a real weight on our shoulders, this run that we've been on. I don't think we can underestimate how how much of a funk the team has been in. And, you know, it, it's very difficult sometimes to get yourself out of that kind of a run. And you just need... You just need a win. You just need a win by hook or by crook. It didn't really matter last night how we did it, to be honest. I wasn't 
hung up on performance. Um, you know, w- things have got so bad that we've sort of gone from worrying about wins where we don't play that well to just wanting to win regardless of how we play. So things have, have been that dark. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, just to win is, is a massive positive um, and one we can hopefully build on, take a little step forward. Yeah, it could be a platform, couldn't it? There are things in Freddie's starting lineup that are possibly, you know, possibly things he can build on. Chambers at centre half, Martinelli and Pepe on the wings, Aubameyang through the middle. You know, those are encouraging signs, and it to have a bit more confidence before, let's say, the the visit of Manchester City on Sunday is invaluable. You know, that's still going to be a really tough game, but I think going into it like we were in that first half against West Ham, it could have been a particularly miserable afternoon. I think at this, at least like this, it feels like we might have a fighting chance, a punching chance, maybe. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so I'm just trying to think, is there anything else we can really well, take away from this? What What have you got on your mind? Uh, just, I felt very unfortunate for Kieran Tierney, isn't it, to, yeah. to pick up that injury. He was carrying a shoulder problem into the game and, I mean, it looked to me like it popped out. I don't know if that's been cleared uh, or clarified since, but it didn't look good, did it? Not yet, as far as I know. It did look like a dislocation. I think, had it been dislocated, we probably would have heard that last night because that's a fairly obvious thing. But you remember, was it Theo Walcott? who for mm. years had some yeah. um, shoulder problems which required Surgeries. surgery to, to really get on top of. I thought it was quite interesting because we were all wondering why it was that uh, Kieran Tierney wasn't in, in the team. And then I think David Ornstein just dropped it into a little piece about uh, mm. Arsenal on The Athletic. And you know one of the reasons that, that Tierney has uh, taken a bit more time to adapt is the fact that he's been struggling with this shoulder injury. Mm. Um, and then all of a sudden, it looked fairly innocuous, didn't it? In the sense that uh, there wasn't a great deal of contact between him and the other player, but, but whatever way he stretched his shoulder back. Um, yeah, look... It, it's not good. It's not positive news. Um, I, I also think that that kind of makes the result last night even more positive. Yeah. Because he'd have worked on a game plan with Freddie uh, or with Hector Bellerin at right back and Kieran Tierney at, at left back. And and as you said earlier, I think Maitland-Niles for Bellerin is it's not necessarily like for like, but they're quite similar in terms of uh, the way that they can play that position. But Kolasinac is, is a different kind of player to Tierney. Um Mm. It wasn't great for the goal, but, it, you know, he stepped up and made an assist um, to, to bring us back level. So, you know, on the basis that we lost our two first-choice fullbacks, one before the game and one fairly quickly into the game, I think that's another little um, another little thing that the players should be happy about, their their performance and their, their character um, in the wake of those little setbacks was, was admirable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know... The fact that we came back, I mean, Freddie, you know, at halftime against uh, Brighton, he did provoke something of a response. I know it really wasn't the result that we wanted, but he got a response again in this match. And it does feel like even when the players start poorly, play without confidence, he is in some way able to motivate or affect them, at least, you know, after after the halftime team talk. So that's, I think, a, a possible positive. I mean, we came from a halftime position where we were behind to win a Premier League match away from home for the first time in eight years. Mm. So that's yeah. a big deal. That was amazing. When they said that at halftime on Sky, I was like, oh, yeah. fuck. 
I know, that was the 5-3 Chelsea game uh, where Robin Van Persie scored a hat-trick, I think. Oh, John Terry slipped, of course. Yes, yes. I'd like to remember that as well. it is. What a beautiful morning this is. (laughs) What a beautiful morning. Uh, so, yeah, let's hope, I suppose, that the injury sustained to the squad, you know, Bellerin's hamstring, Tierney's shoulder, Shaka's mm. head are a bit less uh, concerning than they might have initially looked. But yeah, we'll Partic- find out. particularly as we're going into a very, very um, busy time yeah. of the year. So, um, yeah, well, look, it was a step in the right direction. There are many more steps that we're going to have to take, obviously, and coming up on... Uh, Sunday is is Manchester City, um, mm. so that's going to be a, a difficult one. Did we decide? I'm asking you this um, on air when probably should ask it off air. But did we decide what we're doing on Friday? I can't remember. Are we doing an extra on Friday? I'm actually in Liège. Um, right. Sev- several months ago, the Athletic said to me, "We're looking at that end of group stage game." thinking it could be quite a, a big year. Are you happy to go to Liège? And at the time I said, yes, I am happy to go to Liège. Now I'm slightly less happy to be going to Liège because <laughs> I don't quite know what I'm getting into. But hey-ho, at least it means I miss uh, the election fallout in this country. So that might be a oh, good thing. Oh, God, let's try and keep this, um, <laughs> keep this on an upbeat note as much as possible so we won't discuss any of that. Um, anything else you want to touch on in part one before we go to questions? Just, we are staying up. I say we are staying up. <laughs> you know what? It's weird because we're looking over our shoulders and now we're just two points behind fifth place. Um, you know, mm. fifth place, not where we want to be, obviously, but as the season goes on, you manage your expectations and you, you, you know, you try and finish as high as you possibly can. That's all you can do. So um, three points are, are, are very, very welcome, very important. And at this time of the year, when there's so many games, there's such um, a lot can happen in the, in the table uh, in a few weeks. So, yeah, for example, look at Chelsea. I mean, Chelsea looked like they were sort of disappearing over the horizon. Subsequently, they lost to this West Ham side at home. They lost to uh, Duncan Ferguson's Everton side. Uh, and, And suddenly the table looks a bit more compressed. I mean, the gap between fourth place Chelsea and us is seven points. I think, you know, we've all been looking at Leicester, who in fairness to them have absolutely pulled away. But... Fourth, Chelsea, it's not, doesn't feel quite as far, quite as insurmountable at this stage. Yeah, I think we had a little bit of a tweet on that um, in the questions. It was about how tight it all is. But uh, yeah, I mean, from, we are, from James, sorry, I, James, on, sorry, James Chesson, who's that James underscore Chesson, who says, Can either of you recall a season where the table was this squashed together so far into it? Yesterday morning, I was worried because we're four points above relegation, but now I'm looking at it thinking, Ooh, we're only two points off fifth. Well, yeah, I mean, we are seven points off the Champions League places and seven points off the bottom three. Um, That's bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, it is kind of mad. It is very compressed. And that could work to our favour. It will work to the favour of whoever can put a run together. Yeah. Um, And, you know, maybe, maybe that could be us. I've got a horrible feeling it might be Man United, but we'll see. We'll see. Okay, we will uh, take a break, I think, at this point. And come back, as we always do, with your questions and more in part two right after this. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnarblog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord server, which you get access to if you're an Arsblog member on Patreon. Sign up today, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. It's just a fiver a month. Um, just wanted to ask you very quickly before we get into questions and stuff, mm. did you watch much of Rafa Benitez last night on I did Sky. See, yeah, I saw bits and pieces, mainly the post-match I saw with Rafa, yeah. Yeah, he was interesting. I mean, he completely ruled out um, leaving China and coming back to the Premier League at this point. Mm-hmm, he seems mm-hmm. to be quite happy where he is, um, which I guess is understandable given the fact he's being paid a monstrous amount of money. Um, yeah. But he was interesting. I thought he was really, really good pundit and, you know, explained a lot of stuff tactically. I also thought it was very interesting where he talked about the impact one game can have. Now, I know we're this is this is me clutching at straws. I get it. But he talked about how he was basically one game away from being sacked by Valencia and they were two nil down at halftime. I can't remember who they were against. Um, 2-0 down. They came back to win 3-2 and then went on to win the league. Um, and he said that one game had such a huge effect on you know his future at the club and the club itself. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're looking at Freddie and we're wondering, you know, can he take us on? Can he take us forward? You know, what is the impact going to be of, of beating West Ham, particularly when you look at the, the difficulty of the fixtures? But... Um, there are so many intangibles in football, aren't there, that you can't quite put your finger on things um, with any certainty and say, well, because of this, this is going to happen, or because this happened, that's going to happen. Um, but it would be great if this one game and this one win really did set us on the right trajectory again. Of course, it'd be amazing. I mean, we had a question kind of on this from Takar, who's at Takar75 on Twitter, uh, and they said, are Arsenal fans taking this win against the subpar West Ham side f- too far? I think we're still in a mid-table battle that can easily turn into a relegation battle. Or is this the turning point of our season? I guess we will only know that in the fullness of time. Yeah. Look, I can't say. And if you were to ask me, when you look at the, the fixtures that we've got coming up, um, which I'm just going to do, but our next game in the Premier League is against Manchester City, who are going through a difficult time of their own, obviously. But, you know, they have such quality and such um, such a great uh, manager and coaching staff there that 
Um, it, it doesn't feel like something that will last too long. And if they're determined to get back on track and, and try and keep pace with Liverpool, you know, they're defending their title as well. Mm. Um, you know, you look at that game and you worry. <laughs> oh, yeah. I worry about that game in a big way. You know, as happy as I am about uh, winning last night, you know, I'm not blind to the fact that Manchester City are by far a better team than we are and even if they're going through a difficult period probably have more um, resources and more resolve and more experience um, going into that particular game Um, then you've got Everton away then Bournemouth away and like in fairness I think both of those we should be looking at games as as winnable um, again maybe that's being overly optimistic to away games but you know if we can do it against West Ham Everton are similarly struggling Bournemouth are struggling as well and then you get a home game against Chelsea a home game against Manchester United Um so, look, it's it's going to be a very difficult festive period and the injuries might well play a part, but uh, I, I can't make any predictions one way or the other. I just hope that from last night there is the embers of something which might ignite again, that these players realise that they're not quite as bad as things um, have suggested over the last little while. You know, this is a team this is a team that finished fifth last season, a point off the top four. It's a team that, you know, got to a European final. I know there have been changes and I know there have been some additions and subtractions um, to the squad and, and what have you. But, I, you know as critical as we've been we've always felt that the players are capable of better so hopefully hopefully that's what we see you know hopefully yeah I mean we saw that confidence flowing back into them I think as they took control of the game yesterday Uh, but I, I am worried about City I mean they tend to respond pretty well to defeats it was earlier this season wasn't it when they responded to losing to Norwich by beating Watford 8-0 um but we'll be in much better shape than we would otherwise have been yeah Uh, and I can't believe you're overlooking the, the big match in Liège, Andrew. Come on, that is the one. I'm not overlooking it. I've just got a question about it, which I'm saving. <laughs> I'm trying to segue nicely into, sure. the, into that one. I suppose I might as well do it now then. Let's do um, it. Then. And we'll, we'll come back. And it comes from Josh, who's at Josh Robinson 87 who says, what team would you pick for Thursday night? Do we change the team or do we go with the lineup from last night to breed more confidence in them? Yeah, I was thinking about this last night and I sort of got caught slightly in two minds because I think to have a bit of positive momentum and to have a win under our belt, there is a temptation to try and keep that going. I think realistically, given what we've got coming up in terms of the fixture congestion, we probably have to make changes. And I suppose the one good thing is by dropping someone like David Luiz or Lacazette, you give yourself fresh options in Europe. So I think for the most part, we should be able to put out a a relatively strong looking side while heavily mixing it up. What do you reckon? Um, Yeah, I think we do have to mix it up. Pepe came off last night. He was absolutely knackered, wasn't he? Um, And I think what Pepe did last night demands a start in the next Premier League game. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think the players will also look at these games Differently, You know, it's different. A game against Standard Liège, with all due respect to our Belgian chums, is not quite as high profile or exciting or challenging as a game against Manchester City at home at the Emirates, right? That's the one that they'll all want to play in, not the 
the Europa League game. But but those that do, I've got a I've got a job to do. I think he does have to mix it up a bit. I think he's going to play. I would not be surprised to see a relatively young team play against Liège. I think we could see. I mean, Martinelli complicates it now, doesn't he? Because he's another one who's who sort of played his way into contention for the Premier League. And, I, you know, under normal circumstances, he would play in the Europa League. But I, I think we could see Lacazette up front, for example, with Saka and Nelson mm-hmm. on the wings. I Jay think Willock, you'd think, would play. Joe Willock. I think we'll see Genduzzi in the in the Europa League team. Um, at the back, I think it's going to be Louise and Mustafi. Um, fullbacks, interesting, isn't it? We had a, yeah. a question on Facebook from I think it's Keeveen. Keeveen, I'm going to go for. It's a very Irish name. Queeveen. Queeveen. I was close, uh, and I'm not going to attempt the surname. But how many Queeveens can they be listening? So Queeveen says, with Tierney getting injured and Klasnach playing well when he came on. Do you think Standard-Liège is a good time to promote somebody from the under-23s, e.g. Medley, into the squad for the purposes of depth at left-back? Uh, well, I don't think Medley's a left-back anyway, is he? He definitely isn't a left-back. He's not. He can do it, but it's not his best position. Mm, no. no, it is a complicated one. The full-backs are, are, definitely, um, are definitely a problem because if Bellerin is injured, maybe he'll be okay for Sunday. Um, you could play Maitland-Niles again at right back. Um, could, could you play, I mean, alternatively, maybe Mustafi at right back just for the body and, and give one of the other centre-halves another game? Centre-halves tend to withstand, you know, minutes better than some other positions. Maybe so, maybe so. Or or I don't know what the state of play with Mavropanos is, whether he yeah, could come in played and play. played under-23s the other day. Right, so maybe... Maybe he could come in. I don't know who there is at at youth level who might be able to make the step up in the fullback positions. Um, well, if anyone will know, it might be Frederick, having been under twenty three manager last season. That uh, is a very good point. He will have some knowledge. I mean, Dominic Thompson, who played a bit of left back from last year, has left on a permanent deal to Brentford. Yeah, um, Cohen Bramall obviously left in the summer as well. So I am trying to think who is the guy who plays left back. Let me have a look. Uh, there, there, there are a couple who they're not. It's not an area where I think we're especially um, well off. No, let's put it like that. There's a young lad we got from Barcelona, but I don't think he's quite there with the under 23s yet. No. Is it Joel Lopez? Is his name um, correct? Yeah, he's not. He's not quite there. Um, I'm having a look. I think maybe Tajali Bola has been playing there. Right. Um, for the under-23s. So maybe, I mean, someone will get a game that they wouldn't otherwise be expected to get. I just think, I don't think we can ask that of Kolasinac three games in a week, uh, especially given what he's likely to face against Man City, which is a hell of a test. Yeah, and we're assuming that Tierney is not going to be available for for this weekend. Um, I mean, I'm kind of assuming he might be out for this Christmas period. I mean... I think it could be... I think it could be a lengthy one, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, So, look, yeah, some decisions to make there for Freddie, but, you know, if we... um, If we're realistic, he may just have to throw in a 
a couple of kids or just shuffle the senior players around and ask them to do to do jobs that um, they have to do because we just don't have anybody don't have anybody else. So mm. and and in Lacazette, Louise, Ganduzi, there is a bit of a spine to hang that team on. You know, it's not like we're just throwing kids to the lions there. And if we could get a, a positive result, even a draw, just something to kind of keep that momentum bubbling away, I mm. do think that would be a, a really good thing. Well, yeah, okay. Um, we'll let's have a question, shall we? Sure. Um, right. Okay, Lisa, who's at Gunner Addict says, what do we make of Freddie dropping Ganduzi for two games straight? Is he resting him or is this tactics? I think it's tactics. Mm. I think, look, I, you know, I think Shaka had a, a pretty poor game. There was one moment in the second half where he played one of those, one of those Shaka passes. Um, yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about his um, role in the goal and there was another moment in the second half where he went up for a header and it was all very half-hearted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's such a weird guy, Shaka. It's it's so fucking strange because, you know, he celebrated the goals really strongly and there were moments where I thought in that first half uh, and in the second half in particular, um, I remember a moment where we had a throw midway in our own half. I think Maitland-Niles was taking. I was looking around at the players and nobody was moving. There was no movement, nobody really coming to get the ball. And, and Xhaka was that guy, you know, and it's it's sort of this weird dichotomy of, of him being um, committed and then not committed. It's, I find it hard to get a read on, on where his where his head is, you know, mm-hmm. it's difficult. Um, but I do think Freddie seems to like Torreira and Xhaka together. And I thought, uh, actually, Torreira last night was, that was his best game for a while. Again, yeah. I know we're coming at things from a low bar and everything else, but I did think there was promise in the way that Torreira played, um, in the way that he performed positionally. I thought he was he was disciplined. And yeah, I do think it is maybe just Freddie taking Genduzi out of the firing line. Um, he was sort of like a default pick, wasn't he, for for Unai Emery? Emery had a lot of faith in him, and there were times maybe where you thought, okay, this guy, this kid, he's good, but he's twenty, and he needs perhaps to to just sit down, you know, a game or two, and and not feel like his place in the team is assured. And perhaps that's what um, that's what Freddie is doing, maybe. I think so. And I think when you look at Freddie's um, squad selections, I think you see that, especially with the younger players, he's not afraid to bring them in for a game, take them out for a game. I mean, Bukayo Saka is a good example. You know, he came on at Norwich that I don't think he made the squad for the Brighton match. Mm. Then Joe Willock started Freddie's first two games, wasn't in the squad last night. I think if he if he feels like he needs to sit somebody down or give them a break, especially the younger players, he will do that. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, Gaduzi looked tidy enough when he came on and he'll be chomping at the bit, I think, for the Liège match. You know, he'll be desperate to play against Man City. So... A bit of competition for his place is no bad thing. And I think going from an automatic pick to someone who's who's got to earn that spot will probably benefit him and us in the long term. Mm. 
Right. We'll move on to questions about, you know, what, what might come next, I right, think. Yeah. Um, and we do have a few of those. But here's one from Jonathan Hausman, who's at Johnny Hausman on Twitter. Would the worst thing to be to appoint a former player without managerial experience as opposed to a Premier League-ready appointment? Is an Arteta or Vieira appointment just there to appease the fans as opposed to an actual plan of desired style and progress? That's an interesting question. Uh, I have to say, in both those instances, I don't think it's just about appeasing the fans. I think there are things about both guys as coaches that would appeal to Arsenal. Um, With Arteta, it's obviously his association with Guardiola and the kind of football that Manchester City are playing. With Vieira, I think while he has had a bit of a tricky time at Nice, certainly when he was in America, his team were well regarded for the type of football he sought to play. And it does seem to tally with a lot of, if you hear him talk about football, it tallies with what we might identify as a desirable form of football for Arsenal to play. So I I think they do have attributes that go beyond that. Um, I mean, it's a tricky one. I mean, it does feel a bit like you're potentially appointing someone who the fans are going to give more time. But then I think that is necessary. I mean, when we look at where we are, and I know it's only seven points to the top four, but I do think we are at the start of a process now that might take more than a season, might take more than two seasons. You know, to get to where we want to be, I think we might have to invest in a project and if if the club could sort of convince the fans that there was a project happening i think it would kind of buy the incoming manager the executives and the players a bit more time as we see this come together and i i just kind of think they're just more likely to do that with a manager who is a a bit younger and b maybe someone they already have a bit of positive affection for yeah i think that's a really good point because you know it tallies with what we were talking about with um you know with emery when he was still in charge yeah you know we said look if we could see what was going on here if we could see the green shoots if we could see the the foundations of something being built as he worked his tactics around it you know you could get on board with that a lot easier you know it's it, it you know it always felt a bit um slapdash or you know we're moving from one thing to the next thing and that's the way i think things have gone a little bit with this um with our football executive committee that we don't quite know what the plan is you know they've mm. talked about you know our, the arsenal way and arsenal dna and arsenal football and all that kind of stuff but what is that What is that exactly? Or what do they want it to be? You know, do they want it to be what it was under Arsene Wenger, for example, in the first 10 years of of Wenger's reign? Is that what they aspire for Arsenal to be, to be tough, strong, quick, play great attacking football? If that's what it is, I think we can all get on board with that. But say it and then go out and... and, um, you know, build that kind of a squad, which we know is going to take some time. But if we have that clarity of vision and if we can see that that's what they're trying to do, then I think it does buy time for for uh, for both the people making the decisions and the person that ultimately they put in the job. Yeah, I mean, if Arsenal appoint Mikel Arteta or Patrick Vieira, one of whom has never really managed a senior game... I think we have to accept that they're not going to walk in on day one and be the finished article. If they're appointed, we're appointing a manager who... It's like signing a young player. They're going to improve. They're going to develop as they go. Um, And personally speaking, I'm sort of okay with that. I'm kind of ready to be like, well, look, 
we sort of tried the quick fix way of buying players who were 30 and appointing a manager who had a speciality in the Europa League and all those things and it didn't really work out I think if you could sell me on a vision of well this is a three to five year plan with a coach who's going to improve with a group of young players who are going to improve but we're hopefully all pulling in the same direction I'm ready for that I I would be all right with it whether that patience is something everybody shares I I don't know I don't know nobody can nobody can be under any illusions now that a manager is going to come in and just make it better straight away surely you know we've gone from a situation James where you know we'd talk on this podcast or, or previous podcasts and say Arsenal are two or three players away from being the team that we all want them to be Mm. That's not the case anymore. We're two or three transfer windows, at least. At least two or three years. Yeah, you know, from being the team that we want Arsenal to be. So I do think there is a a need to be realistic about how much can be be achieved, whether it's Mikel Arteta, Patrick Vieira, or or anybody else. I think that's something we, as fans, have got to come to terms with. Um, And I, I know it's really hard to to suggest that to people or to expect in this sort of world of short-term opinion that seems to be so prevalent, whether it's football or anything else, that people have a measure of patience and um, give something time. Yeah, I mean, to look at Chelsea by way of example, I don't think Chelsea fans think Frank Lampard is currently the best coach or manager in the Premier League. But I do think that because he's Frank Lampard and because there's clearly a project at play, they are prepared to give him time and think, well, he might get better. You know, he will learn. He will improve on the job. And I kind of think a similar thing could happen at Arsenal because we have got a group of exciting young players. You know, that academy batch you've come through this summer, other young players like, you know, Torreira, Tierney. Uh, I do think Pepe, you know, I do think there is an exciting group to work with there. And I just think my hunch is that if you appoint someone like Allegri, as fantastic as their track record is, that almost might contribute to the idea that, okay, we're going to turn around and suddenly be competing for the title in the immediate future. I, I think that there needs to be almost an admission that that's not on the table uh, and say, look, uh, uh, what I'd love is, you know, the Cronkies always saying, well, our ambition is to compete for the Premier League and the Champions League. They love saying stuff like that. It'd be great if they were like, we accept that currently we are not in a position to do those things, but this is the project we're going to undertake to get there. Yeah, And I, I really think that given what's happened with Emery, I think there might be more appetite for that now and people might be willing to give it sort of the, the the time and the patience it will need. Okay, do you think in that context then people will be willing to give the football executive committee mm. the time to make the right appointment or if, you know, we lose to City and then, you know, we, we don't play well against Everton, that pressure on them to make a decision about who's going to take the job is is going to grow? Yeah, I mean, I had a question sort of like this from the Discord from Emmanuel Lane. And Emmanuel said, I'm worried that Arsenal might jump too quickly in deciding who should be the next coach. Typically, their decision-making seems to be rushed and quite often leads to disaster. Do you think uh, Do you think we need to take a time-out from making a decision, leaving Freddie operate as the caretaker until the end of the season? Um, 
Hmm. I, I mean, the West Ham result buys them a bit more time, doesn't it? Had they lost last night, I think there would have been a need almost to just stop the bleeding and make a change, you know, to to try and elicit some sort of response from this group of players. I think as it is, um, they've got a little bit more time, although there is some chat around. I think Guillaume Balaguer tweeted yesterday saying he expects Arsenal to make an appointment this week. Yeah, um, there's um, another one on the Discord from... Marijan10, who says, Goodly fucking morning, gents. Goodly morning to you. <laughs> Goodly morning. Goodly morning. What do you make of the Carlo Ancelotti rumours coming from Di Marzio? Um, he, apparently, he is quitting after their Champions League game against Genk. He's in charge at Napoli, for those who don't know, uh, and immediately flying to London to take over Arsenal. Also, being Croatian, I hope we dodge the Niko Kovac bullet. Yes, Kovac, I think, is throwing his own hat into the ring from what I can see. Um, the Ancelotti situation is weird. I saw a story this morning that Napoli have already agreed terms with uh, Gattuso as his... Um, <laughs> as his uh, sometimes maybe good, sometimes maybe shit. Exactly. Uh, Ancelotti, I mean, yeah, it's it's an option, I think... It's one of the less exciting ones for me. Personally. Safe though, perhaps a safe, safe, perhaps yeah, safe pair of hands. Very good at, you know, players like him, and he generally has happy squads. And happy squads, as Freddie has said in the last two weeks, play good football. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, that's an interesting one yeah. but yeah if you ask me now would I rather have an Arteta or Vieira that's definitely more the side that I'd be on yeah sure but that, as we said earlier that Arteta Vieira thing has to come in tandem with with the plan or the project or the strategy yeah. that's True. very clear so do you think in the space of the last few weeks you know let's not forget that that it was only a couple of weeks ago when Raul and the rest of them were firmly behind Unai Emery and dismissing criticism of him from fans and from the media as noise and external mm -hmm. pressures and things like that. Do you think those people who are so prepared to stay with Emery have, in this short space of time, put in place the kind of plan that would allow a manager like a Vieira or an Arteta or somebody younger, somebody forward-thinking, to come in and implement their vision? I'm not sure. The only thing I would say is that for all their faith in Emery, in the summer they really did foreground the academy and they did sell players to create opportunities for those academy players within our squad. So while their faith in the coach was ultimately misplaced, I do think that there was a commitment to rejuvenating this squad and sort of uh, leaning into the strength of our academy. Yeah. So maybe it's just about identifying the mm. right coach to, to deal with that and to help mm. those players develop. I mean, again, Freddie's name will will be circulated, I'm sure, because he knows those players better than anybody. Yeah, I mean, part of I, I look, I, I love the idea of young players coming through our academy, but, but um, when you talk about what we did in the summer, and clearly we did, we did sell players and make room in the squad for young players to come through. And you could you could point to that as being a very um, smart, long-term thing to do because you're giving these players time to develop and, and, and that kind of stuff, right? Mm. But there was something that Vinay said in those interviews where it was, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's a cost-effective way for Arsenal to 
to build a squad. Mm. So you get rid of some high earners, you bring in some young kids on relatively low wages with the hope that many of them will make it, but with the knowledge that most of them won't. And what you're doing is you're replenishing your squad and you're making those young players more valuable for when you sell them. So that's sort of in the back of my mind when you talk about that. Yeah. But but in relation just to a, an appointment and when it might happen, I think there was something quite interesting in what Freddie said after the game. Now, maybe he's been told to say this. I don't quite know. But but he said, I'm, I've been told, I've spoken to Edu, and I'm just taking it on a game-by-game basis. So maybe he has to say that, but it doesn't sound like there's any... Um, anything from those people to Freddie to say, look, you're in charge for the foreseeable future because we're going to take our time to make the right appointment. That's just Mm. maybe reading between the lines a little bit, but... um, I I mean, clearly there are conversations going on, I think, and if they can... I think if they can make the appointment they want now, I think they will. I mean, it's... You know, uh, we talk about a rush... Um, a worry that they might rush it. But how long has it been since Emery was sacked? It's been uh, two and a half weeks, I think. Yeah. So, you know, and three games in that time. Managers certainly get appointed quicker than that in a lot of situations. I mean, Spurs is a very particular example, but they appointed a manager the next morning. So there has been time and a process undertaken. I think we just obviously don't know Mm. the ins and outs of it. But... What's your gut tell you? Do you think we're going to have a new manager before Christmas or do you think Freddie's going to lead us through this period? I, my gut tells me they're going to appoint somebody relatively soon. Mm. I think. Um, I don't know who it's going to be. Obviously, nobody does. Uh, I, I notice um, David Ornstein uh, is sort of leaning fairly heavily towards the Mikel Arteta thing again. Yeah. Yeah, some suggestions that um, it won't happen before the Man City game for very obvious reasons. But in the wake of that Man City game, he could become the new guy. Mm. Um, so, what a weird week that would be for Mikel Arteta because it's Arsenal Man City on the Sunday, uh, and then the next game that Arsenal we have Everton yeah. is Everton at Arsenal. Yeah. Wow, wow, yeah, look. Football is really weird the way it throws up little quirky um, things like that. But, yeah, I I suspect that given what happened the last time with Arteta and the way that ultimately he didn't get the job, which I I know hurt him because of how far down the road it was. I'm sure. And because of how last minute the Emery thing was, despite what they say – it was the last-ditch appointment. Um, I think if we're going to go down the Arteta road again, it can't be to do the same thing to him because then you burn that bridge completely, don't you? You're right. You're right. So if yeah. we are going to... I don't mean lead him on, but if we are going to go down that road with him based on what's happened in the past... You would think he would want some assurances that, look, you're not gonna, you're not gonna fuck me at the last minute again. Do you remember, like, um, it could be a common theme actually. Do you remember when um, we signed Arteta, and he mm. was on his way to London, 
and we phoned him or something happened where it was something to do with the length of contract. I can't yeah. remember exactly, but basically it meant that he would be taking a pay cut from Everton to come and join Arsenal. And, yeah. and the following season, the senior players, given the influence that he had when he came in at that difficult period, himself and Mertesacker in, in particular, a delegation of the senior players went to Arsene Wenger to suggest that it was unfair that this um, wage inequity happened. But mm -hmm. he was prepared to still join at that point, even though last minute we tried to fuck him. And then with the manager thing um, 18 months ago, we definitely fucked him. So how, <laughs> how prepared is Mikel Arteta to get fucked by Arsenal again? That's a question. Well, yeah, and one wonders almost if they, you know, if they are meeting other candidates or interviewing other candidates, one suspects he might almost be inclined to say, well, you've interviewed me once. Do you know what I mean? You know, you know what I think. Uh, mm. Come to me when you've got an offer. And Well, I don't think he's in a position really to be like that, to be honest. I, I don't think he is because he's never managed a game. He's obviously a very promising coach. And, and look, yeah, there are true. people people who are talking about um, him taking over from Pep at Manchester City. You know, Manchester City's not a, not a club being run by idiots. So if that's something they're prepared to do, there's clearly potential there in, in his in his um, talent as, as a coach and what have mm. you. But, you know, I don't think he's in a position to just say, look, you know, you know what I'm about. Give me the job. I think he's got to, you know, explain to them what more he has learned in the 18 months at um, at Man City and what it is that he thinks he could do with Arsenal in the state that it's in right now to to bring us back to where we want to be. So I think he's got some still some uh, some work to do in convincing people that that he's the right man for the job. Well, yes, and also, I suppose, to assuage some of the concerns. I mean, one of the issues with him last time was he didn't have a backroom staff. Now, maybe the presence of Freddie, for example, is something that you know helps in that regard. He, they'd want to keep him on, I think, certainly. Uh, but, you know, who else would his backroom staff be? Things mm. like that that can close the gap that he didn't close last time. I mean, my gut on the manager is that this this week, with three match days in the space of seven days... I just don't see Arsenal announcing or doing anything in that period. But no. once the Man City game is out of the way, you've got a full week then before Everton on the Saturday. Uh, and that does feel like it might be the time potentially where they could put something in place. So, mm. yeah, uh, my eyes are firmly on uh, next week for that. Mm. Uh, is it my question? I think, I think, I think it, it is. It could yeah. well be. Uh, this one comes from... Harry, who is at Harry underscore Herneman, who says, has your opinion of Emery changed slightly since hearing the reports from David Ornstein about his preferential signings? And do you feel for him knowing he was fully aware of the good evening uh, jokes? Uh, there was another one on Twitter that I saw, but I can't find it now. Apologies. Uh, oh, happy Wenger, who's at FM underscore Jai underscore Nan. Um... In the light of Ornstein's article on Emery not being overly impressed by the mockery of his command of English, where should we fans draw the line? Obviously, with your good evening sketches and all, you probably have meant to be meant it to be more of an endearment of sorts. So let's deal with um, the signings thing first, where it was revealed he wanted Zaha, he wanted Harry Maguire, and he wanted um, the dude from Atletico Madrid, the defensive Thomas midfielder, Partey. Partey. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, give me your thoughts on that. Well, I, for one, am shocked that uh, our 
Arsenal did not give Unai Emery those £200 million worth of players. Um, what he also would have liked Messi and and the, he didn't come I mean I uh, yeah I, I I'm sure that he did want those players because I know David's sourcing is always impeccable um, but it you know wanting them and then being realistic is a very different thing yeah yeah there was no chance you know if, if you're pushing for Zaha Zaha who might have cost more than um, Pepe Pepe how do you then expect Arsenal to pay 80-odd million pounds for Harry Maguire? Mm. Oh, I saw a brilliant tweet about Harry Maguire during the week. I hope I liked it. Where are my <laughs> likes? I have to look it up. So you can't explain or expect Arsenal to pay 80 million for Harry Maguire, another 50-odd million for um, Partey. That's just yeah. not realistic in any way, is it? No, I think maybe a more fair question is, would either of those players have been a more sensible use of the money Arsenal paid for Pepe? I think that's a, a debate, you know, that you could have. Um, but I, I don't think it was ever realistic to land those three. Does it change my opinion of Emery? Not really. I mean, I do think that Emery not really being party to the transfer decisions at the club did hinder him. I will say that. I think mm. he lost players that he would have picked and that probably would have helped him. I'm thinking people like Monreal, Iwobi, Mkhitaryan. But those decisions were made in the best interest of the club. And I think that for the most part, we we thought they were the right kind of call. So uh, as for the good evening thing, I mean, yes, of course, that is unpleasant that he knew that that was sort of a, a meme. Um and I admire him for sticking with it and never budging from it in the uh, in the light of that. Yeah, look, here's the thing. If Arsenal had won a lot of games and played well and been successful and been where we wanted them to be, Good Evening would have been like this quirky little um, th- phrase that everyone would have found kind of endearing. As it was, I think, in the first half of last season. Yeah, of course it was. You know, it was just one of those funny little quirks of language. Um, is it kind of like... You know, Wenger had loads of them and we just sort of went with them because, um, you know, that's the way that he talked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a little bit handbrake and exactly. all of all of that kind of stuff, you know, look. Um, so, you know, it was all really dependent on results. There are always some people who will take things a bit too far, I guess. But, you know, it's just the, the, the context in which those good evenings were delivered. It became became what it was. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, interesting to see him linked with the Everton, Everton job. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know if he'll go for it, but uh, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see him back in English football quite so quickly. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, I think it's Spain feels more likely a destination. Sure. Him, there you go. For sure. Uh, let's have a look. I had a couple more questions. Uh, oh, I enjoyed this one from uh, Neil Siglechner on the Discord. And Neil said, is this victory down to the Arsenal players having only bland and flavourless dinners waiting for them at home? Uh, Yes, Neil, it is. (laughs) It's entirely down to that. And I I could tell from the way they played, the way they celebrated, they celebrated like people who were like, we've got to enjoy this moment because our dinners are going to be so horrible. Maybe they were promised really nice pies if they won a game. Maybe. Until such time as you guys win a game of football, you will be served flavourless, gritty gruel for every single meal. But if you would like a delicious shepherd's pie smothered Mm. with gravy, 
you win. And we will deliver to you all the delights of the chef's kitchen. Very possibly, very possibly. What about this one from Roy Diaz, who says, it looked like Per was involved in the coaching setup today. I missed the announcement that he's interim assistant manager. Interim. Thoughts on, <laughs> yeah, thoughts on his future in first team coaching. Do you think there's any chance Per gets sidetracked or, you know, drawn into the coaching world? Um, I don't know. I mean, he's a really smart guy, Mertesacker. And I think um, that's a really important thing if you're a manager. Um, yeah. I had my brother texted me last night about, uh, what did he say exactly here? Um, I'm, I'm just giving you this in, in the context of really smart people being managers. Right. Um, he said, Sherwood is a fucking moron. <laughs> and I said, we don't, we don't have him on TV. He was obviously watching on a stream. I said, what's right. he saying? He said, just nonsensical shite. Sentences are hard. Um, so I just wanted to get that in there while we were sure, talking about it's good, it. Sure, it's always good to squeeze that in. <laughs> I is. mean, I, I have asked uh, Mertzacker about this, and he was quite insistent a few months ago that he didn't want to get into coaching and that yeah. he saw his future as a technical director. I do think it's, it's a, an intriguing one, though, because I think if you're a footballer, someone who whose life has been out on the training pitch, it, there must be a certain thrill you know, to being back out there with the players, sat on the bench, part of that group, part of that camaraderie. I'd be amazed if it doesn't make him have, you know, a, a little second thought. Maybe. I think, you know, he's he, he obviously cares a great deal for the club. You can tell that in the way that he talks about the job that he's doing as academy manager. And he was very mm -hmm. proud, you know, as a captain of the club and to, to, uh, to win trophies with Arsenal, et cetera, et cetera. So I think he is sort of stepping into the breach, uh, you know, to give Freddie a hand at what is a difficult period. And, you know, if, if Freddie is not the guy for even the, the short to medium term, um, there's no point in him bringing in staff or appointing staff from outside is there for one game or two games or sort no. of however many games it might be it might be four or five games in the end you know so what what do we have to work with at the club but you've got a guy who knows the young players you've got a guy who knows the club itself you know he's there he's in situ so I think that's probably as far as it's going to go uh, with, with Per but you know it's a it's a good looking bench you know, you look at Freddie on the bench, you look at Mertesacker there beside him, you know, mm -hmm. you can connect with that. You can connect with that, which brings me to, I think, what will make the final question. Go on. It comes from Nunaman, who's at Nunan Nation. And he says, do you think the fan-manager relationship is as important as we think it is? What a good question. Because something we asked during Emery's tenure is, can you think of managers who sort of succeeded in spite of the fans at times? Um, and in fact, in spite of their relationship with the fans. And it is a difficult one to... I think we used Rafa, didn't we, at Chelsea? Rafa Benitez at Chelsea Rafa as the only Chelsea. example we could really think of. And even that was, that was short-term... Yes, I think in a short-term situation it's easier. I think it's pretty integral. I mean, as the role of captain diminishes, uh, particularly at Arsenal, and becomes less and less 
of a, a, a kind of totem pole for the club, I think the role of manager becomes, or head coach as it may be, all the more important because that person is simultaneously kind of spokesperson, cheerleader, you know, decision maker. Um, I, I think, and given the way fans are so interested in, in the intricacies now of training and tactics and those elements, I think there is so much focus on that individual that I think it actually probably is incredibly important. Yeah, I, I sort of stand by that. What about you? Yeah, it's it's crucial, crucial. Mm. You know, um, fan, you know, football management is a really, really difficult job. Mm. You know, we can criticise and we all have our opinions on, on what a manager should do and, and everything else, but we should be under no illusions as well that it is an extremely difficult job, not least because you've got to manage relationships with fans. You've got to manage relationships with, you know, fans in the stadium and mm -hmm. fans not in the stadium. You have to kind of control those two um, relationships. You also have to manage club politics. You have to manage players, players being good, players being bad. You've got to manage the media. Like there's no hiding place anymore for a manager. You know, you're on 24-7, basically. Yeah. So I do think it's a really, really tough job. Um, but I think the connection between fans and a manager is is huge. Um, for the manager, for the fans, for the club, for the atmosphere that it generates, um, for the environment that it creates, for the players, um, yeah, it's it's absolutely vital, and and it's why communication is a big, big part of it. And I think that that was as hard as he tried one of Emery's, you know, big failings, an inability to communicate properly what he wanted from the team or from his job. Um, mm. And it was only towards the dying days where he started talking about connecting with the fans, which showed you how important it was for him. He understood. But it wasn't something that he seemed to put a great deal of um, effort into, I guess, because he would have looked and said, well, if we do it on the pitch, then that will kind of take care of itself. But in the absence of that, you have to be able to connect with fans. So I think it's it's really, really um, a massive part of, of the job for a manager and f for our experience as fans as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we talked about that idea of trust a lot this season. And I think having a, a manager and a figurehead who the fans trust is what gives a club room and time to grow. And that is what we we, we desperately need right now. Mm. OK, well, look, on that note, we're going to leave it there. Thank you uh, for being here. Hopefully you've enjoyed what has been, I think, a much more upbeat and positive podcast than the ones we've had in recent weeks and months <laughs> yeah but that's not our fault um but look hope you enjoyed the show as ever please give us a rating review on itunes or apple podcasts or in your favorite podcast app tell a friend share the podcast around um james you enjoy your trip to belgium uh, i will on on thursday thursday yeah, yeah. Mm. the big one the, big, the one. big one uh, Standard Liège versus Arsenal. We will cover that on the Arscast on Friday morning. Um, so until then, take it easy, folks. Cheers. Bye-bye.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.